Section 4 of The City of Din. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amelia Chesley. The City of Din by Dan Mackenzie. Are there any other natural sounds you would like me to consider? The cry of the plover, lonely and clear? The whirring whistle of the snipe? the cawing of rooks at nightfall, the lowing of cows, the rippling of a brook, the swishing fall of rain on the sea, the rush and roar of an alpine avalanche, the thundering downpour of a waterfall. The world outside the walls of the city is full of pleasant sounds, bringing joy, health, and quiet breathing. And were these all the sounds that this world contained, how placid would our natures be? From this picture I now bid you turn to that I am now about to paint. Civilization is noise, at least modern civilization is, and the more it progresses, the noisier it becomes. Could we be transported back in time to the days of our forefathers, the first impression we should get would be one of surprise at the exceeding quietness of the world. Picture Thebes at the height of its splendor. Temples and deep shadows fill the foreground, and from the distance one can hear the musical cry of the water-seller and the creak of the shaduf as the peasant draws up water from the river to irrigate his patch. Wayfarers shuffle along like sheeted ghosts in the sunlit streets and alleys, their bare or sandaled feet making scarce a sound, while the occasional rattle of a passing chariot only serves to accentuate the general stillness. Even in the quarries whence the great blocks are hewn to build the temples and the tombs, there is but little noise. Hammers and crowbars are in use, no doubt, but their strokes ring clear and musical amid the chip and scrape of the chisels, and the work done by the moistened wooden wedges is silent until the rock splits asunder with a sudden crack and crash. Very different, this, from the din of the modern workshop and factory. Man's noisiest occupation is battle, and we must admit that wherever men fight, there will be turmoil and uproar. But compared with modern warfare, an ancient battle is an affair of twittering sparrows. Come now to Athens. Here also is stillness. Stillness broken only by the hum of the peripatetics haranguing their students and disciples in the groves around the academy. Even the Panathenaic procession itself would strike us as quiet, for the loudest sounds are the mingled songs and laughter of the worshippers and holiday-makers, the clatter of the prancing horses, and the troubled lowing of the sacrificial cattle. The tragedies of Aeschylus, the plays of Sophocles and Euripides, the farces of Aristophanes, are played in spacious theatres, open to the sky and to the city, and yet the actors are audible throughout the whole circle of the auditorium. Take Rome next. Rome the center of the world, the cerebrum of the most efficient social organization ever constructed, is nevertheless, compared with London and New York, a city as silent as a dream. The streets are paved with solid blocks of travertine, and the wheeled vehicles make some stir, but street traffic as we know it is unknown. Most people get about on foot, or horseback, or in litters borne on by slaves, while merchandise is transported in mule packs, or in vehicles drawn by stead slow oxen. The quietness of the ancient cities may be imagined when we remember that both the Athenians 
and the Romans practiced the art of public speaking in the open air, all their political gatherings being held in the streets and open places. Now tell me, what stentor in our modern times could, like Demosthenes or Cicero in the Forum, or like Paul on the Areopagus, address a meeting from the steps of the Royal Exchange and hope to hold his own amid the uproar? The same must be true of the medieval city. For one thing, the narrow, winding streets prevented anything like an accumulated stream of traffic with its unending clatter. Florence, for example, must have been quiet, even in times of political upheaval. Otherwise, Dante, adding a city of din to the city of dis, would have appalled us with a circle of the inferno given over to the devils of racket. It is true that the demon Cerberus, a barking dog, by the way, who thundering stuns the spirits that they for deafness wish in vain, and the mingled cries and wails of the damned struck terror to his soul, but Dante's imagination never conceived the possibility of noise as torture in itself. What noise he did hear in hell was incidental, so to speak. Obviously, he had never experienced din as we moderns know it, and when he seeks to convey to his readers the idea of some overpowering crash, all he can liken it to is the sound of a tempestuous wind in a forest. No, it has been left to scientific civilization to fill the world with stridency. We have to pay for our comforts in racket. And it has been left to Syme, a modern artist of incisive wit, to depict among the punishments for sin the eternal grinding of a street organ, and to the feeble pen of the present writer, to attempt a description of the noises that assail the ear in the modern city. To that city of din we now pass. All hope abandon, ye who enter here. Writers of the antiquarian reminiscent school, of whom England is so prolific as almost to suggest that she is in her dotage, often lament the loss of our old English street cries. Let them take courage, remembering that lavender is still vocally hawked about in its season, and that the milkman's yodel is still audible from our area steps, with the clink of his cans as an obligato. Neither of these, to be sure, is a noise according to our definition, seeing that they are both fresh, pleasant, and even musical. The muffin man, also with his bell and his board, still perambulates our quiet Sunday streets during certain months of the year. But I am afraid that the auditory disturbance he creates does approach in quality to noise. It is an interesting, and as far as I am aware, a hitherto unremarked fact, that the tones of the voice can be modified in such a way as to carry not only over long distances in space, but also through an atmosphere burdened with excessive sound. Of the former, Sir Walter Scott in The Maid of Gierstein gives a description. Presumably, it is the Swiss yodel he has in mind when he speaks of the singular shrill modulation that astonishes his hero on the mountains. That yodel, which has now degenerated into one of the sideshows of Switzerland, like the cowbells. Why, I asked my Führer one day, do they hang bells around the cow's necks? Um den Herren zu gefallen, was his reply. The cooey of Australia is another of those far cries. It was bequeathed to the early settlers by the Australian natives, and similar modes of projecting the voice to great distances are practiced by many other uncivilized races. 
workmen in our own country who labor amidst noisy surroundings, of which more unknown, instinctively adopt a peculiar tone when conversing at their work. Beetlers, for example, throw into their voice a special quality which enables it to traverse the bone-shaking thunder of their machinery. And in our noisy city streets also the draymen, taxi drivers, and bus drivers contrive to exchange bandinage at considerable distances in spite of the jarring rattle and rumble of the traffic. Of recent years, however, I notice that they are beginning to rely chiefly upon the language of signs. A charming suffragette of my acquaintance once informed me that she was attending a class where women were being taught how to address a meeting amid the noise of the London streets. How are you taught, was my natural question. Oh, she replied, one of us speaks while the rest of the class imitates the noise of the traffic. It is to the penetrative quality of its notes that the popularity of the street piano is due, the music of which seems to travel along a plane of comparative stillness to reach our ears, and sometimes also our hearts, through amidst and yet in defiance of the massive clatter of street din. There is a peculiar sweetness in unexpected music, and especially in music with a background of jangle. Witness mill girls singing amid the metallic whir of spindles, and children warbling in a wagonette or landau, like canaries in a noise. We must not omit to mention also the common and pathetic London spectacle of a guitar player strumming his strings just outside the door of a public house. Looking to heaven and longing to enter it, he directs his notes by some dexterous sleight of hand so that they shall be heard only by the elect and not by the passerby in the street. For the benefit of foreigners who may read this book, I hasten to explain that the cruel exclusion of the musician from the tavern is due to our peculiar liquor laws. In London of recent years, since the motor vehicle with rubber tires has to such a great extent replaced the horse-drawn vehicle with its iron-girt wheels, the noise of the traffic has altered very considerably in quality. It is less clattering, less jarring, less varied, and to this grateful change the provision of smoothly surfaced roads has contributed not a little. But while it has altered in quality, we must also regretfully note that it has not lessened in quantity. The roar of the traffic of motor buses, taxicabs, and motor cars is of a deeper, more thunderous, and more overpowering nature than in former days, principally because the vehicles are heavier and are driven at a much greater speed. In addition to that fact, there are also two new sources of unpleasant and disturbing noise, part and parcel of the motor vehicle. One is the jarring and grating of the change speed lever, particularly in the motor buses, and the other is the motor horn. The motor horn. The motor horn. I often wonder why in all the world such an instrument of torture has ever been permitted to exist even for a single day. But there it is, an institution fixed, established, to be conserved, and of a variety when the motor car took its first experimental run, the noise of the explosions in the cylinder was all undamped. Never do, said the wiseacres, shaking their heads. Far too noisy. Too noisy, echoed the engineers. Soon settled that little trouble. And they proceeded to invent and to perfect the silencer and the multiple cylinder with the happy result that nowadays the engine produces a mere gentle purring, not unmusical. 
This little example shows what can be done when quietness is insisted upon. But the engine and gearbox having been quietened, needs must that the horn develop, or the king's lieges suffer scathe all unused as they were in those early days to swift movement. So ingenuity again set to work, producing noise this time to take the place of the noise they had just abolished. Hence the horn. Horns, surely never before in the whole raucous history of din, have such fiendish contraptions split the air. First and foremost, there comes the hoarse, reedy squawk that betokens the cheaper car, the taxi, and the like, croaking like some gigantic raven from a dinosaurian age as the driver dashes round a corner or threatens a slow-going horse vehicle in front of him. Then follow horns of a more ambitious and even more assertive quality, some of them passing for musical, music being the least disagreeable of noises in this connection, like the Gabriel horn, whose sounding diapason is startling enough in all conscience to awaken the dead, the bugle horn that tootles mechanically the dominant notes of a chord, the horn that sounds all the notes of the chord simultaneously, and at the end of the list come unearthly screeches, squeaks, and groans from the various noise producers on the exhaust, a rattling whistle that vainly aims at continuity, and finally that ear-rending hollow cough, likened by a tortured surgeon in the middle of his sleepless night, to the bark of a sea lion at the zoo. The modern chemist has been able to concoct compounds which are, to all intents and purposes, genuinely novel creations, every whit as deserving of that proud title as the products of M. Worth. So, with motor horn noises, for the first time in the history of the universe, we are condemned to endure the infliction of genuinely novel noises. Man, in a word, has created all by himself unprecedented varieties of din. No wonder the nerves jump. Really, man's possibilities are so appalling. Vaguely hovering about in the shady background of my memory, there is a hazy recollection. Or have I dreamt it? that Parliament had been gestating, and that after much groaning labor it had given birth to an act forbidding the use of horns and such like noises on the exhaust. Whether or no these exhaust and exhausting noises still bellow on, deafening, startling, and harassing the noise-worn nerves of the dwellers in din, until death, as the eternal silence, allures us now as never before he hath allured the people of this earth in all the long history of time. Drivers vary in their reliance upon this warning trump. A few will glide from one end of London to the other without once compressing the rubber bag or diverting the exhaust pipe from its normal functions. But the vast majority of them pin their faith to a constant exercise of the malign reeds of their brazen trumpets, in consequence of which there is no escape from the noises they produce. Bad enough during the day, their effect is ten times worse at night, when everything else is silent, and the squawks, coughs, and screeches echo and re-echo along the deserted streets, waking the weary from their hard-won slumbers, and denying their so badly needed rest to the sick and suffering. Exasperated beyond endurance by his callous trumpetings, I have frequently thrust my head out of a taxi window, and have bidden the surly devil, Don't drive so much on the horn! and as a set-off to his muttered but perfectly audible blessing, have soothed my ruffled feelings with the reflection that were all fares equally sensitive, 
or considerate, or courageous, London streets would be much more pleasant and not any less safe. Not any less safe because, naturally, when he dispenses with his raucous herald, the chauffeur drives with greater care and with more consideration for pedestrians. Nor is the loss of time in any degree serious. In my opinion, the motor horn is quite unnecessary, and were the motor horn abolished and the change speed lever of the buses silenced, the noise in our streets would be rendered much less wearing. The trams, to be sure, would still remain. Those gawky, perambulating crystal palaces whose hollow rumble sounds so dirge-like, just as if they were mourning for the money their upkeep costs the ratepayer. This sorrowful din adds greatly to the traffic noises in many of our streets, and I cannot suggest any method of reducing it. For once the old advice to resist the devil must be reversed. End of section four.